Good morning. Welcome. It's time to make the donuts, and here we are making them. <clears throat> hey, what's up? It's Jeff. Uh, the sun is rising, and so it's time to do another episode of Good Morning From Us. Good morning, everybody. I'm kind of really tired right now. I'm not going to lie. Ugh. On... At this time, I wake up at 4 o'clock. I wake up 4 o'clock in the morning on Tuesday. It's Tuesday morning for me. I know it's Monday night for you. I wake up at 4 a.m. And I figure, well, it's great, great time to do a sunrise show. Um, we're going to launch right into it. Let's talk about some Batman. Oh, boy. Batman is my favorite comic book character, maybe of all time. I mean, he... And, you know, my affinity to Batman goes back to the year 1988, maybe nine, definitely 1989. I was, it was like my first, that was my first thing. That was my first superhero. You know, I, had, I was familiar, obviously, with Batman 66 on TV, Adam West. But, you know, I was just coming into consciousness as Batman was taking the world by storm in 1989. I'm born in 1980, late 1985, right? Uh, but I remember going to the drugstore with my mom, and she would buy me the packs, you know, with the, with the gum you're not supposed to eat because it's stale. It'll crack open all your teeth. She'd buy me, like, the Topps Batman 1989 collectible cards and, uh, you know... Uh, that was the, my first, that was like the exposure, part of the partial exposure. Wasn't my first film in the theater, as far as I know. I don't think I saw it in the theater. Maybe I did. I don't know. I can't remember. I think I had to have. I gotta, I gotta check with mom and dad about that one. Because I remember my first film being Spaced Invaders. What's going on, Riot Gear? How you doing? Welcome. Welcome to the show, Mr. Red. Welcome to you as well. Hope you guys are having a, a wonderful evening or morning, depending on where you are. But yeah, Batman was like, oh my God, it was everything. It was absolutely everything. And at the time, that was like the, I mean, I was too young at the time to have this, to, to recognize this observation amongst pop culture. But at the time, this was like cutting edge for Batman because the old, uh, you know, everybody, at that time, the only live action Batman that they had was Adam West from the Batman 66 series. See, here's the thing about Batman that we all need to understand. Batman is, he's not just a comic book character. He's a literary character. He's a character of literature. And just like Sherlock Holmes, just like Moses in the, in the Torah, or the Bible. Yeah, I went there. You know what? Uh, and he's open to interpretation. People interpret Batman. There's so many... There's a few, and I've spoken about it in the past with my friend Bob Rose. There's a few core concepts that you need for Batman to remain being Batman, but you can pretty much go anywhere with the character as long as you dress him up as a bat. At the end of the day, you literally can go anywhere with the character. And we've seen it. We've seen it time and again. But at this time, this was like, this was the first time that Batman on the comic book page was really being brought to life um th there's i would say but you know going back to we were just talking about torah for a second 
the Bible, you know, you have BC and AD, right? Like it's this, this, this big divider, you know, before Christ and uh, after dead or something, whatever, however it works. Well, for Batman, uh, I would say that year would be 1986 when Frank Miller came out with the Dark Knight Returns because that that's the moment when Batman kind of becomes the uh, immortalized as, as the, as the uh, modern Batman. See, we could go back to the set, the seventies actually with Ryder, with uh, uh, Dennis O'Neill, I believe his name is. And uh, some other guys, they were kind of bringing Batman back to a darker tone. It started in the seventies. We can't give Frank Miller all of the credit, but the big dividing line is by far the Dark Knight Returns. That's what changes the game. Batman starts in 1939 or 1930. No, 1939. Detective Comics, longest running comic book in the United States, Detective Comics. Batman starts in 1939 and he is way more detective than he is superhero. He is a dude who is a millionaire and he dresses up like a bat and he is a detective and he solves mysteries that involve, you know, supernatural things. You have, he carries gas pellets in a belt. He's got a gun. Yeah, Batman used to use a gun. Uh, Way, way back when, the original character, the Bob Kane character used a gun. Now, people often credit Batman's creation to just Bob Kane, but that's that's just not true. Bob Kane is only half of the puzzle. The other credit, and there's a documentary about this recently, which I have not watched yet, but I really want to. The other credit really needs to go to a man named Bill Finger. Bill Finger was Bob Kane's sort of partner in crime. Bob Kane was more of an illustrator than he was a writer. And Bill Finger was more of a writer than he was an illustrator. It could be wrong about that, but I think I got it right. Bill Finger like created all the stuff we know about Batman. Like Bob Kane wrote like the Batman and his original version of Batman doesn't even look like Batman. Um, But it's Bill Finger who really fleshes out the mythology and sort of brings Batman to what he is or what he is known for in the comics, you know? Um, And that all sort of happens in that early detective comic period. So, and then, and then Batman explodes from that point on in 1940, he gets a sidekick Robin. Then in the fifties, it's like, all the fads start, right? Like in the 50s, Batman's fighting all sorts of weird monsters. Like things get really friggin' weird. He starts wearing like zebra print suits, bat suits, pink, purple, yellow, green bat suits. Um, he's fighting crazy monsters. He's fighting villains like crazy quilts. Uh, things get even weirder in the 60s. It just keeps going on and on. Just the zaniness of Batman. Chris brought up what did Chris Chris is in the comments. What's up, Chris? Chris Chris brought up Batmite. Batmite comes into the picture. Batmite is, I think Batmite is the same as Mr. Mixelplick or whatever his name is, the Superman's nemesis, the guy from the sixth dimension. I think Batmite is also from the sixth dimension. And um 
Yes, you are right. He did have a cameo. Bob, uh, Chris says Bob Kane had a cameo at the beginning of the film. This is true. This is true. Um, but, but uh, the, the 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 mythology just starts starts to really get out of control, and this is heightened by what's happening in the city in the sixties. You know, we've spoken about this in the Beatles episode. So the three B's of the nineteen sixties, right? The three B's. What are the three B's uh, of pop culture? Bond, Beatles, and Batman. And the Batman in reference is Batman 66. Batman 1966, a TV show, live action TV show. Um, I forget, I forget who put that on. Ran for three seasons, 120 episodes in three seasons. And it was kind of in a way, it was kind of like the tales from the crypt of the 60s, in that everybody sort of Everybody who was anybody would stunt cameo on this Batman series starring Adam West and Burt Ward as Robin. Adam West as Batman, Burt Ward as Robin. And there are some things that we get from, there are some like aspects from the Batman 66, which is really just an extension of the craziness of the comics at at the time, uh, which was really, really popular. But there's some of that stuff still carries over today. A lot of the camp, a lot of the goofy aspects that you'll see pop pop its head up from time to time is from that period and then of course like like anything you know that's on a parabolic evolution you, you know when when you get too round what do you go to square when you get too square what do you go to round you know there's the same thing with bell bottom jeans remember that bell bottoms you got bell bottoms are cool in the 60s and 70s and then it becomes all about straight tight jeans and then in the, in the 90s, all of a sudden, all the all the girls, I remember all the girls in my school, they all started wearing bell bottoms again. It was cool. You know, like, and baggy pants, you know, it was cool to wear baggy pants. And now it's cool to wear tight jeans again, skinny jeans. It's like this, it's like this inflating, deflating concept. It was the same thing with Batman. It goes from being super serious and super, I mean, Batman's killing people with his gun, right? Super serious to suddenly a goofy Batman that, has all sorts of crazy gadgets and, you know, uh, lives with his butler and he has a bat dog, Ace the Bat Hound, and just goofiness galore. And then all of a sudden it gets super serious again. You know, uh, Dick Grayson goes off to become Nightwing. He gets he recruits a new guy, Jason Todd, because he catches him trying to steal the, 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 the wheels off of the Batmobile. Um, and the 70s come and things just get dark. He goes back to being the world's greatest detective. But now here's the difference. We were talked about before, he was more of a detective than he was a superhero. And now in the 70s, he's more of a superhero than, say, a detective. But that's not even really a good statement to make because that's the thing about Batman. That's a huge core concept of Batman as a character is that he's, he's always a detective. He's the world's greatest detective. That's the point. You know, he he is, and that's something that they always sort of seem to neglect in the movies, many of the movies, not all the movies, but some of the movies really neglect. I think, I think Christopher Nolan's Batman movies really neglect this aspect of Batman, that, that he is a, that he's a detective, that he's a detective first. You know, that's why I've always said, and people, people laugh, laugh in my face. One day we're going to do a big deep dive on this. But I will throw down all of my money and say that Batman Forever is probably the best live action Batman film. 
like as a singular Batman film, live action Batman film effort, it is going to be Batman forever. Like 150%. Uh, I have so many reasons to back that up, but I'm not going to get into them right now. I love Batman. I love Batman Returns. And I love Batman Robin. See, that's the thing. Going back to the thing about like iterations, every single adaptation about Batman, whether, whether you personally love or hate it, is valid. Because all it is, it's just an adaptation that focuses on certain aspects of Batman's character. And people get, you know, their, their pants all tied up in a knot about it. Oh, that's not really Batman. That's not, you know, we're, we're purists. Like our Batman has to perfectly represent what we love about the character. And if it's not true to that, then we, we riot and go, you know, crazy and, and, and get upset and yada, yada, yada. Uh, Slashman says that producer Michael Olson said, Uslan uh, said that the upcoming Batman will deliver on the detective skills. That's great. That's great. I'm glad to hear that. Slash also says, love the Schumacher love. Fun fact, he was the only director that was actually a Batman fan beforehand. And it shows. And it really shows. And people got really bent out of shape because he put nipples on the bat suit. And I'll be honest with you guys, I think that's nothing more than just homophobia man like people like that's just 90s that's just a byproduct of like 90s homophobia you know just like like what who gives a shit if they're nipples on the bat suit why does that matter why does that matter it's like schumacher's coming from a place of like looking at like you know roman breastplates you know batman is as much of a detective as he is he's also a warrior fighting a one-man war on crime trying to make himself look beyond human, even though he's just a human, another huge part of his character. And he exhibits that in, in certain, that comes out in like hubris in the sense that he thinks that he alone can stop all crime in Gotham. That's his craziness too. You know, like there's all these different, and so he, he like, he's, he's making himself seem more than human playing into the myth. He's wearing these breastplates with nipples on. So fucking what? So what? Oh, he's got nipples on the bat suit. That's really gay. You know what I mean? Like, it just sounds so stupid. Um, I never bought into that. I never, never bought into that. I always thought that was, like, lame. Like, so what? Who cares if there's nipples on the bat suit? All of it is valid, man. All of it is valid. Even And Batman and Robin. People hate Batman and Robin. I love me some Batman and Robin. Because you want to know something? Batman and Robin is just a movie adaptation of Batman 66. If you look at Adam West Batman, which a lot of people love, but then you say, hey, what do you think about Batman and Robin? They go, oh, terrible, terrible. Because like it's like the cool thing to do. You know, it's the equivalent of like the Misfits fan that's like, we're talking about this in the group a lot. You know, it's like the Misfits fan that's like, oh, I see you wearing a Misfits shirt. Well, name three songs. You know, or, oh, you're wearing a Ramones shirt. Name three songs. You know, it's like that. That stupid elitist fandom bullshit, man. Yeah, Batman and Robin is really great as a deliciously campy, like goofy adaptation of Batman. The first 15 minutes of Batman and Robin is so action-packed. You can't take your eyeballs off the screen. Go, go, rewatch it right now and, and tell me I'm wrong. I'm not wrong. It's phenomenal. It's a phenomenal film. And the same thing with Batman Forever. I love those Warner Brothers movies. I think I think they were they were great. They were great, especially in hindsight. And yes, I went through my period where I was like, no, 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 like none of this. 
really rip when I was like deep in my my comic book reading phase. I've read Batman for years and years and years. I read comic book runs of Batman starting in Nightfall from 1992 all the way up to Batman RIP in 2009. So I've read 20 years of Batman modern comic book history, you know, straight. So I really feel like I I really understand Batman, at least the modern version of Batman. And I went through my periods like, none of these are really, truly Batman. But, you know, I I never, I never once, never once bought into those Nolan films. That That's another story for another time. We're here to talk about Batman, the original Batman. So the reason why I'm talking about, like, you know, how every interpretation is valid how Batman's a literary character to be adapted. That's how we have to look today. When we look, we always talk about context. When are we looking? Are we looking at this within the context of, of, of what year? Are we looking at it from when it was created? Are we looking at it 10 years after it was created? Are we looking at it 20 years after it was created? Because fandoms change and our understanding of artwork, of these pieces of art, of this media changes along with that. And so you have you have uh, when Batman 89, which by the way is now getting its own comic book series as well. When Batman 89 first came out, you had, everybody was like, oh my God, it's like the perfect Batman. They nailed it. They nailed the dark tone that I've been reading in my comic books. It's friggin' awesome, man. Oh, like everybody was super stoked. Batman did $400 million worldwide at the box office, which is unheard of. I think to this day, it is the top, uh, it's in the top five biggest grossing films of all time from when they first came out. Like it was, that was a huge movie. The summer of 1989 is the summer of Batman, truly, right? And everything, you, it was everywhere, everywhere. I remember, I, I, man, I remember like, like as I'm coming into consciousness and playing with the, these toys, you know? Um, and, and Tim Burton, Tim Burton's an interesting character. Tim Burton comes into the picture. He, he was signed on to do Batman in 1986, so full three years before they released the film, he had he had only directed one movie. He had done Pee-wee's Big Adventure in 1986, and he had done a short film, Frank and Weenie and Vincent, and, some, and he worked for Disney. And um, they were still not sure about Tim Burton's abilities. And then he did Beetlejuice. And when he did Beetlejuice, everything changed because Beetlejuice was a, a smashing success. Beetlejuice, 1988, you know, comedy, dark comedy, I guess you would call it. Uh, super original, unique film when you think about it. like, And that's what Tim Burton really does better than anything else. Because Tim Burton is an interesting cat. He's like, especially with like his later films, it's all about style over substance. Like story takes a backseat to style. How does everything look? Production design, you know, wardrobe, stuff like that. Uh, big sensational scenes. You know what I mean? For the for the trailer, all story and, and character sort of take a back seat to those things. However, you, the rule of thumb with Tim Burton, especially early Tim Burton, generally speaking, is if it's an original idea by Tim Burton, it's going to be knock out of the park flawless in every single aspect. And if it's a, a, an adaptation of something, it's going to be I don't want to say flawed. Flawed is not the right word. And it's not a, that's not a nice word. I think to, to, to Tim Burton, 
I love Tim Burton. I've seen, I think I've seen every single Tim Burton film there is to see. Maybe except Dumbo. I don't think I saw Dumbo. Um, what's the better way to put it? It's, uh, it's not flawed, but if it's something that he's adapting, story, s- story takes a backseat to style. That's what, that's the truth. That's the truth. And if it's something original, the story and the style is going to be there. And a prime example of that is both Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands, two incredibly unique, original, quirky films, uh, brilliant masterpieces by Tim Burton. Batman and Batman Returns are brilliant masterpieces by Tim Burton as well. However, they are both, I'm going to just say it, they're flawed. They're flawed films. That's the, that's the best word to use. They're flawed. Hold on. Let's look at the comments real quick. Um, Slashman says, Bob Kane couldn't be in the film because he was sick. Right. He was, uh, however, that is his artwork. Yes, his artwork is featured of a Batman, I believe. This is Bob Kane on it but he he bob kane was very pleased with with the batman that um that tim burton put out and he passed away uh in the middle of, of all that batmania i believe um well it doesn't take a detective to know who knocked up the cat <laughs> yeah i'm not you know i i know that uh i know that batman and catwoman are married now in comics i have not followed comics recently for many years because it's too expensive uh and when I started to become a filmmaker, I the money that I would spend on comic books instead was diverted towards equipment and things. And I just re I, I relocated resources in that kind of way. Uh, so I'm not in touch with, with I mean, I know some things, but I'm not really in touch. Slash says, I think Batman and Robin isn't directly linked to the 60s show, but they both drew from the same source material, the Silver Age comics of the 50s and 60s. And I would say it's not, no, it's not direct slash man. It's definitely, it's not direct, but it's absolutely there. It's absolutely there. The, the tone, if you don't think that Joel Schumacher in the nineties, wasn't thinking about Batman 66 when the, when they said, Hey, we want you to go lighter with this stuff. It's too dark. We want you to go back to the lighter side of things. Of course he, he went back and looked, he must've looked at that source material. And it's a shame we never got that fifth Batman movie because I would have loved to have seen Nicolas Cage as the Scarecrow. That would have been really weird and wild and interesting. Speaking of which, Nicolas Cage was going to be working with Tim Burton to do Superman, which would have been awesome as well, you know. Um, Thanks. I wasn't sure about Burton shot at Broadner's, the bar I drank at, blah, blah, blah. my favorite line is, hey, Batman, what killed the dinosaurs? In That's that's Arnold Schwarzenegger's line in uh, Batman and Robin. It is great. So, you, so, all, so, yeah, right. We're talking about Tim Burton. Sorry, getting sidetracked with his comments. So Tim Burton is sort of, he, he, he's, he gets very, he can be very flawed. He can be very flawed with his films when he's not, when it's not his own personal source material is basically what I'm trying to say. I, I agree with that slash people forget that um, Schumacher was picked by Burton himself. Well, that I didn't know, but forever was pretty much in Burton's style before studio revisions. So there you go. There you go. <laughs> Sorry. Um, where were we? Okay. Batman 89. 
Batman. Sorry, trying to keep this all on. We got to keep 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 on the train, Jeff. Keep on the train. So Batman eighty nine comes out, and today. So how was it received back then versus how it's received today? Back then, well, there was like so. I feel like there's three perspectives on Batman eighty nine. There's when it first came out where everybody's like, they nailed it on the head. It's perfect. Blah blah blah. We got Walter White coming in from New Zealand. What's going on, Walter? Glad you're here. Uh, we got we got people in 1989 are like, this is the perfect adaptation of Batman. It's just like Frank Miller's comic, The Dark Knight Returns. I love it. Blah blah blah. And then, as the 90s go on, as Bat people's understanding of modern Batman gets more informed by what's going on in comics, everybody and and you know something happens. Kevin Smith. And Tim Burton, who almost collaborated together on the Superman Lives thing, because Kevin Smith wrote the co- uh, wrote the script, and Tim Burton was going to direct, and we just said that Nicolas Cage was going to star. Um, you know, Kevin Smith kind of burns Tim Burton when he does. You know, he does this this live spoken word performance thing, and one of his his first stories when he first started doing it that really sort of put him on the map with this sort of storytelling. He would tell these behind these behind the Hollywood stories. He's a very candid sort of guy, which is what I love about Kevin Smith. And he talks about how Tim Burton says admits that he's never read a comic, and that really sort of echoed with a lot of fandom at that time, where they started to sort of really, you know, and that's that's Smith sort of jabbing back at Burton, who who said some disparaging things about Kevin Smith, and then here's Kevin Smith talking about how Tim Burton admits to having, having never read a comic, which makes everybody sort of like rethink and recalibrate what Batman 89 is and started going, oh no, this is all wrong. This is all wrong. And you know, if you read Batman comic books and then you watch Batman, you're going to see some stuff and we're going to talk about it in a minute, 10 things. That's the whole point of this, this, this show, right? We're going to talk about that in a second. Um, but it, it is vastly different. It, it really deviates from a lot of the core concepts in the same way that Nolan's Batman deviates from a lot of the core concepts. I'll tell you, I was watching The Dark Knight and in the middle of watching The Dark Knight um, in 2008, a film that I almost worked on as a production assistant because I was right there when they were shooting it in school. Um, they... They, uh, uh, it was the moment where, where Bruce Wayne says, I'm going to stop being Batman. And it was in that moment, along with a few other moments where I said, nope, fuck this movie. That's not Batman. Batman would never say something like that. And that's what I mean by like these core concepts, because one of the core concepts of Batman is that Batman is always going to be Batman. It's much, it's much like, it's much like the core concept of Spider-Man which I love, I love this. My friend Nathan came up with this, or he didn't come up with it, but he brought this to my attention. The, thing, the, the, the way to really nail Peter Parker and Spider-Man is as follows. Everything that Peter pa- Parker wants is the opposite of everything that Spider-Man wants. Whatever Spider-Man wants always ends up harming whatever Peter Parker wants, and whatever Peter Parker wants always ends up harming whatever Spider-Man wants. But Peter Parker and what makes him a hero, what makes him like, like truly worthy of the, this power that is a great responsibility with great responsibility, with great power comes great responsibility, is that he will always choose what Spider-Man needs to do over what Peter Parker needs to do. And it always ends up 
hurting Peter Parker's social life in some way, shape, or form. And to a much sort of a, a, a similar layer of that lies in Batman. Batman's core concept is that when his parents were shot and killed, the real Bruce Wayne is Batman. Batman is Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne is really more of the, I, the, the secret identity, just like with Clark Kent and Superman. Clark Kent is actually the secret identity of Superman. Kal-El is the person. Clark Kent is the identity. Bruce Wayne, even though he was born as Bruce Wayne, Bruce Wayne is the secret identity. Batman is the real guy. You know what I mean? Bruce Wayne can never have anything like deeper than whatever superficial connections he has with people because his entire life is devoted to being Batman entirely because he's waging a one-man war on crime. And that's why The Dark Knight Returns was such a revolutionary idea. It was such a revolutionary notion that this man is rising above just his one-man war on crime and he's literally taking on a god. You know, they go, they explore this greatly in Dawn of Justice, Batman versus Superman, this, the Zack Snyder film, which takes heavily from The Dark Knight Returns, way more so, in my opinion, than, than, than Batman 89. But it's this, this idea that people, that just rocked people to the core, where it's like, yo, Superman, he's a god. He's not just a person. He's not just an alien. He's not just a super being. He's a god. And Batman is just a man. And man, who's so angry with God, is going to take him on with his technology and try and beat him. And that's what happens at the end. Spoilers. You should read it. It's a great, great book. Um, so that's like at the core concept of Batman. And they totally got that wrong in The Dark Knight. And I was just like, I was so turned off. And in a similar way, we were talking about how people react to Batman 89. In a similar way, people started to reject batman 89 because there were it's missing a lot of these core concepts mainly that batman doesn't kill people this is a huge huge thing batman to batman all life is sacred and precious and in order for him to be the, the line that he draws in the sand that separates him from the real crazies because he wears a mask just like they do but what separates him from the from from the people that he fights is that he doesn't kill you know what I mean? It's like this defining thing that reminds him that he's not as insane as the rest of the guys he's going up against, you know? Uh, and that sort of goes by the wayside in Batman 89. But then people will go back and be like, well, actually, and then this is, I think, the modern understanding of Batman 89. People are just like, well, if you look at the 1939 comic book, Batman 89 is a sort of a faithful somewhat faithful adaptation in a way of the original batman from 1939 you know that's how you have to think about it in the same way that if you think about batman and robin as batman 66 it's easy it's easy to understand why that movie is what it is that's how i look at batman and batman returns to an extent it's this early batman who is killing people he's not using a gun in batman 89 but you know, and that's something that Nolan did correct. He, he did the whole story of why Batman doesn't use a gun, which I thought was great. Slash here says, Burton definitely read comics in preparation for the films. Again, Michael Olslin actually gave him some essential issues. Okay, so I didn't know that. 
I mean, he's been quoted as saying, anybody who knows me knows I've never read a comic book in my life. And even if he read comics in preparation for the films, that doesn't make him a comic book lover or a comic book reader or, um, you know, studying of the source material. When you hear Tim Burton, and we're going to launch into our list in a minute. When you hear Tim Burton talk about Batman, he's so like, he's, he has such a superficial understanding of Batman. He goes, yeah, Batman's about the, the duality of, 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 you know, dark and light, you know, like that's literally all he ever says in interviews. You watch the making of on the discs and that's what he's talking about. Right. The, the good, the good and the, and the dark, the dark and the light. It's a, there's duality. It's this man who wears a mask and he's got duality. You know, he just loves the word duality, focuses on it. And Batman is not a do, there's no duality to Batman. You know, that's what, that's what I'm saying. Like, there's no duality. Batman is Batman. Bruce Wayne, like Clark Kent, is the mask. You know what I mean? Everybody knows this. This is like a, 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 a huge thing. But at the same time, there's really three aspects. There's Batman. There's Bruce Wayne. The, the detective Bruce Wayne, like the Bruce Wayne when he's not wearing the Batman mask. And then there's, you know, sort of like a flaky, phony, superficial Bruce Wayne, aloof, yada, yada, yada. And that's another thing that I will give to Nolan. He sort of tried, he tried his best to sort of create the, the, duality, the duality, if you will, of Bruce Wayne. Like you have these two different versions of Bruce Wayne, uh, which you don't see as much in Michael Keaton. But let's launch into the list because we have a list here. I saw, I love Screen Rant. They always do these very interesting things that I can just like latch onto and then sort of uh, uh, expand on and, and pull on like Kathy. Uh, if you like this content, if, you're, if this is your first time with us, please make sure, take a moment to like, share, and subscribe to this video or subscribe to this channel because we do stuff like this all the time. Uh, okay, we're going into it. We're going into it. So here we go. Boom. Now, Michael Keaton, one thing I guess we last thing we need to mention here about Michael Keaton is that he is he is all set to play bat. He's just got finished or he's in the middle of playing Batman again. That's right. Michael Keaton has returned as Batman and people are are loving it because 30 years on people are, are, are starting to really, as I said, going back to like how people feel about Batman 89 all these years later. Batman 89 rests in a really good place right now. No one's like, you know, oh, it's a phony, phony Batman. Me personally, I have never, on one hand, I don't think Michael Keaton is a good Batman Bruce Wayne. I don't. I think he's kind of, I don't think he understands the character. And when people want to argue, argue me blue in the face about this, I just bring up one scene. The scene in Batman 89 where he, he's Bruce Wayne and he puts, he puts a sterling silver tray under his shirt to, to sort of protect himself from a bullet, which is kind of like a very Batman. That's a very comic book thing for, for Bruce Wayne Batman to kind of do if he's caught in a pinch without a suit. But then he, he does this thing that is just pure. He breaks character. He's not Bruce Wayne anymore. He's Michael Keaton. And he goes, you want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. And I promise you that is just so something Bruce Wayne would never say. He would never, ever say, you want to get nuts. He would never act like that. It was just such a, to me, it, that's what demonstrated, that, that's what showed me like what Tim Burton thought about Batman Bruce Wayne when he allowed that scene 
to to go to have to happen. I don't know if that was an improv line or if that's in the script, but it is go- it is goofy. It's goofier than, in my opinion, it's goofier than anything we see in Batman and Robin. Probably the single most goofiest moment in all of the Batman Warner Brothers films happens in the first movie when Batman holds when Bruce Wayne holds up a fire poker to the Joker and says, "Want to get nuts? Uh, let's get nuts." I mean, it is really goofy, man. It is really, really goofy. Slash says, honestly, the comic accuracy of 89 really came from the all-star set of advisors and comic fanatics helping uh, writing production, including Steve Englehart, who wrote some important issues. And listen, there is a lot that they nail on the head. I mean, we're going to, I don't want to spoil it because we're going to go into it right now. We're going to go into it right now. Batman, 10 things unique only to Tim Burton's version of the character. Tim Burton's take on Batman is wholly his own. But what about the character did he change from the original DC Comics? Those old enough to remember 1989 were undoubtedly caught up in the massive summer craze that was Batmania, which swept across the nation like a fever. Eccentric and extraordinary director, eccentric and extraordinary are the perfect ways to describe Tim Burton. Um, brought his own gothic fantasy, yes, so true, own gothic fantasy style to the comic book kingdom. When he directed and unleashed the first iconic Batman film starring the amazing Michael Keaton and the legendary Jack Nicholson. We haven't spoken about Jack Nicholson's Joker. And I think it's great. I think it's really great. I think the best thing that Nolan ever brought to the table with his Batman films altogether is his version of the Joker as well. Heath Ledger's version of the Joker is, and that's what, you know, I said, I'm not a fan of the Dark Knight Return, the Dark Knight. I think it's, I think it's not a good movie, but I've rewatched it multiple times because of Heath Ledger's magnetic magnum performance as the Joker. Um, There's a lot of great Jokers. Cesar Romero is a great Joker. And just like Batman, each one of these guys brings their own great flavor to the Joker character because there's so many different ways you can take the Joker and every single version we've seen in the films or the TV show has been incredibly valid, I think. Burton would direct the follow-up sequel before passing on the next two, which turned out to be an embarrassment. I mean, not really, because Batman Forever, like, why does it, why do people call it an embarrassment? Batman and Robin was an embarrassment, but Batman Forever did incredibly well. Val Kilmer, that, that Val Kilmer, like, exploded from Batman Forever, like, exploded in stardom. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Jim Carrey. Um, Still, his decision to make Batman a frightening and calculating character was a major hit with audiences. I don't think of Batman in either of these films as frightening and calculating. I actually think that Batfleck, Ben Affleck as Batman is far more frightening and calculating than Michael Keaton is. I think Michael Keaton is 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 a kitten in these films. I do, man. I do. But, but at the same time, there is sort of like this really, like, I have this like incredibly wonderful nostalgic feeling about Michael Keaton coming back to the role 30 years later and playing an aging Bruce Wayne Batman in the Flashpoint movie. I'm all about it. I'm all about it. I love it. I think it's so wonderful. What a wonderful, you know, sort of nod callback send up to the original Batman movies which i do love i've I've watched how many times have i watched the original batman 89 i love it i love it 
it's it's phenomenal. It's a phenomenal film. We wouldn't be sitting here talking about it the way that we have if we didn't think it was phenomenal. However, you need to understand it within the context of the comic, of how people have sort of perceived it and reperceived it, and what did Tim Burton bring that was unique to the character. That's what we're doing. So it's right here. It says. Okay, so still his decision to make Batman a frightening and calculating character was a major hit with audiences. Here are 10 things about Tim Burton's vision of the Batman character. I didn't even see, what does this go to? Uh, that are totally unique in comparison to other big screen versions. What is this? Oh, okay. There's 10 reasons why Michael Keaton is still the best Bruce Wayne. No way, totally disagree. All right, so 10 of 10. An awkward Bruce Wayne. Most big screen adaptations of Bruce Wayne of, of the Bruce Wayne character portray him as a nurse as narcissistic and or boring. Uh, maybe in there, maybe in Nolan's in Nolan's Batman, maybe not in not Val Kilmer, uh, maybe George Clooney. But you know, I don't blame George Clooney. George Clooney's perfectly fine Batman Bruce Wayne. It was just the way he was directed by Schumacher. And I can't, like I said, I can't fault Schumacher because Schumacher was at the behest of the studio who was like trying to sell toys. You know, I mean, Schumacher took a lot of crap and he didn't deserve to at all. He didn't need to take all that crap. Um, most big screen adaptations of Bruce Wayne uh, of the Bruce Wayne character portray him as a narcissistic and or boring. This was designed to try and separate him from his alter ego and throw everyone off who might try to form a connection. Sorry. Uh, was designed to try and separate him from his alter ego and throw anyone who might try to form a connection off the scent. Tim Burton accomplished this feat by using a much different approach. Instead of using the same formula, he made Bruce Wayne out to be an awkward weirdo without his wealth, would probably have been ignored by most people. The trick was making the audience wonder if his eccentric behavior was the real Bruce Wayne or a clever act. By blurring the lines, it was impossible to tell. Mm, I feel like they're giving, I feel like the writer here is giving Tim Burton and Michael Keaton way more credit for that than maybe they might deserve. Maybe. Um, you know, one of the big problems with Michael Keaton, I hate to say this because I think you know, uh, um, this has nothing to do with his acting ability. And I'm a, I love Michael Keaton, dude. Dream Team, Multiplicity. Uh, he's great in Jackie Brown. So many great Michael Keaton roles. Gung Ho, Mr. Mom. I mean, the dude is a freaking genius. Um, but in his height, his height is going working against him. He's really short. You don't, when you look at him as Bruce Wayne, he looks he's just too short man he's just too short I, I just feel like bruce wayne needs to be thicker kind of like again to go back to ben affleck even val kilmer this is where the one area where val kilmer kind of loses the only area where val kilmer kind of loses points is that i feel like what what make, what keeps val kilmer from being the perfect the perfect bruce wayne live action bruce wayne that we've seen is uh his stature batman is a big guy not like hulk not like hulking in the dark knight returns per se but he's kind of like a 
he's he's actually that Ben Affleck is like the perfect looking Bruce Wayne in my opinion. He's he's thick, T H I C C, like thick. You know what I mean? Like chunky. I like it. Um, you don't get any of that with with Michael Keaton. He just looks like he's just too frail and meek. And yeah, you can go, oh well, that really throws people off the scent. But like, no, that's not Bruce Wayne, man. I don't know. It's not Bruce Wayne in the comics either. I just don't. I don't, that that's the one thing that doesn't work for me. Even even uh, you know um, George Clooney has the Playboy thing down pat, but even he he's, his frame is he's so slender. They they, they cast these slender guys and bruce wayne is like a he's built more like a football player you know um so yeah i i i think that this is uh it's definitely unique to to batman batman 89 uh nine of ten his suit design uh the batman this batman suit now when this came out when batman 89 came out everybody loved the suit but you know as time has gone on people started making fun of the fact that Batman literally can't turn his head. He has to turn his shoulders. And and listen, again, I have to hand it to Michael Keaton. What makes Michael Keaton look, you know, when they say clothes make the man, in this case, I would say the clothes make Michael Keaton into Batman because Michael Keaton with the clothes, with the the suit on, looks like Batman. He is a absolutely a valid iteration of, of Batman. And it's phenomenal, man. It's it's really great. And at the time, people really did love the suit. And then people started to make fun of the suit, the fact that he can't turn his head. Um, his movements are very awkward in, in the suit. He can't really do anything. If you notice, when he kicks, he kicks with his whole, more in Batman Returns, he has to kick with his whole whole body. He like has to lean his whole body to the side and lift his leg up to kick. You know what I mean? He's got this big, heavy leather cape that weighs him down. It's more, um, he's more, I don't know. He's more of like, uh, it's more, uh, what's the word I'm trying to think? I'm I'm at a loss for words at the moment. It's more, uh, it doesn't, there's no no practicality to the suit that he wears and that Val Kilmer or, George Clooney wears. These are suits that are really hard to do stuff. However, and this is again why I love Joel Schumacher. Joel Schumacher finds a way for Batman to fight in his suit, especially in Batman Forever. The fight scenes in Batman Forever are phenomenal. And you really get a feeling for Batman kicking ass for the first time in live action history, truly, in that kind of way. Um, And then Nolan sort of like tries to step move away from this he's like well i really wanted i really wanted christian bale to be able to turn his head so i redesigned the bat suit and takes away from the mantle this this the you know one of the things the shape of batman in 89 is perfect it's so iconic the 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 way that the horns come up and and the straight sort of mantle that sort of uh it's like it's it's almost like he's made out of stone in this way and it does impose a fearful sort of uh, look and and menace in in that kind of way. But it's not Michael Keaton doing it. It's the suit. Uh, Slash says, I miss the new look design with the yellow oval as impractical as it may be. I love the new look. I like the, I like the Batman with just the, the plain black symbol. However, 
the yellow oval does serve a purpose. It, it is a target to draw gunfire away from Batman's head. And this has been explained uh, a bunch of times in the comics. I think it was made, it was famously explained firstly by Frank Miller in The Dark Knight Returns, if I'm not mistaken. Batman's suit design, the first two Bat, uh, Tim Burton films was supposed to look extremely menacing and aggressive, and it worked. The nature of the getup meant that Batman could swoop down unsuspecting on unsuspecting foes and terrorize them enough to tell fish tales in crime-ridden back alleys. And, you know, Tim Burton seems to be obsessed with that in the first 30 minutes of the film, showing Batman coming down on the line, you know, with his, you know, impractically with his cape raised up, trying to create that sort of thing. I mean, it doesn't really feel scary or menacing it feels you know it feels kind of goofy um i don't think we don't really get that aspect in the schumacher films that at, at that point batman feels way more like a superhero in batman and batman returns batman does not feel more like a superhero as a matter of fact you could take the superhero aspect out of the burton films altogether and you just have this you have a billionaire who dresses up like a bat and is, you know, kind of like this, a vigilante. It feels, Batman feels more like a vigilante in the first two Batman films. He feels way more like a super, superhero in Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. You know what I mean? Um, so I don't know. Yeah, Slash says it, Slash says it perfectly. It's funny how he does this epic bat pose only to get shot by a low-level thug two seconds later. Now, both Batfleck, Ben Affleck as Batman, and Christopher Nolan Batman, I will give them both points in this category because they it, uh, both Snyder and Nolan filmed Batman like a serial killer, especially in Batman Begins. This is the moment of Batman Begins that really, really shines until he opens his mouth and sounds like a friggin' moron. It sounds like an idiot. But before that, see, Kilmer had the best Batman voice. But before that, there's a scene in the warehouse where they first introducing us to Batman in Batman Begins and Batman sort of swoops down, takes his guys, goes back up on the line. I mean, you really get that mythology, that mythological supernatural sense that Batman's supposed to be creating. And he almost feels like a monster. It's filmed like a monster movie that's slowly taking the, the, the you know, the uh, people one by one until there was one, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, you really get that feeling, and you get that you get that as well in the with Batfleck. You get that in in Dawn of Justice, where the the two cops it's a it's a scene actually from The Dark Knight Returns. You get the two cops going into the house, and you know they see Batman scuttling up a wall, and he doesn't look quite human. He doesn't look quite you know like a monster. He looks like this weird in between thing. They really capture that quality very well. That's not apparent at all in in the in the Burton films, in my opinion. That's right, a hail ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight. Phenomenal. See, there's that's something that's phenomenal that that Tim Burton brought or whoever the Sam Sam Ham who who wrote the screenplay brought to brought to the character or brought to the the movie that whatever this contribution. I love the I love that I, I kind of like that you know because they, they they establish well they're going to we're going to talk about that in a minute actually so let's let's keep reading let's keep reading part of the design included a stiff st uh, stationary neck piece that prevented actor Michael Keaton from turning his head from side to side 
while it did make Batman look more tough, it 100% did. It also prevented him from accentuating his movements. And I much would have rather had him be able to accentuate his movements. But I guess maybe it was to Michael Keaton's you know, benefit that he could just look tough because he doesn't look tough. That's the thing. Michael Keaton doesn't look tough at all. Uh, Christopher Nolan poked some good-natured fun at this design when he debuted Batman Begins years later. Yeah, uh, not Batman Begins when he does The Dark Knight, and it's not good. Eight of ten, the yellow bat insignia. Uh, while the overall design of Batman's suit was a huge departure from the previous comic book and TV source material, it wasn't without its flaws. The jet black color was astonishing. And yeah, I mean, before this, Batman, we always think of Batman as being in a gray bodysuit. Batman 89 introduces the jet black Batman, and it's wonderful. It's it's so it's so perfect. It's so iconic. Um, it takes everything to the next level. It hides, you know, in darkness. It hides certain things that may not work with the human anatomy when trying to make like a Batman-like figure in real life. Uh, so, so bringing the jet black color is absolutely was astonishing, and it clearly set a dark tone for this particular Batman that mimicked Frank Miller's The Dark Knight source material at the time, one hundred percent. Could not agree more. However, the inclusion of a bright yellow Batman insignia on the front chest was a bit much for gritty for a gritty Hollywood take on the comic book source material. I couldn't disagree more. That's such bullshit. Uh, it's hard to imagine criminals talking about a giant killer bats wiping out Gotham's criminals after seeing what is essentially the golden arches of superhero iconography. But at, like we said, if anybody who, who reads Batman knows that, that this is to draw gunfire away from Batman's face and onto his chest, it's a target. It has a practical purpose. And I don't think it takes away from that mythology at all, especially if, like Slash says, where he's, doing the epic bat pose in one second that's what people are going to remember they're not going to they're going to see a flash of yellow they're not going to be like and he had a gold the, the equivalent of the golden arches logo on his chest you know um slash says it was designed in color like the comics but kane convinced them to make it colorless looked great 100 i i like both listen i like both i prefer the one without the color because i think it looks cooler but it serves the yellow serves a practical purpose and has become quite canon in both comic and non-comic form. And I'm okay with it, especially, I think the dark, uh, the animated series really sort of normalized the yellow, the yellow and the Batman symbol seven out of 10. Wait, we already had so yeah, seven out of 10 is Batmobile. This by far of all the things that we can really give Burton credit for, it is this Batmobile. This is the coolest Batmobile. It it follows the sort of it follows the tradition of Batman 66 and the comics, but really Batman 66, where people really that was the first time that people really latched on to the concept of the Batmobile being this really important piece of iconographic icon. I can't say that word iconography thank you i thank you jeff iconography it was a really important piece of iconography to batman as a whole and it was taken to a whole new level with this batmobile which has a nipple at the very end of it but, but it looks really cool 
in uh, Batman 89. It's just a, it's such a great car and it's made a comeback in the new movie, whatever new thing is coming out. They have this Batmobile again. It's awesome. Makes me so happy to hear that. Uh, it's safe to say that no other cinematic Batmobile can hold a candle to the Tim Burton original. Couldn't agree more. It threw the dated concept of the 60s TV Batmobile out the window in favor of a menacing hot rod built on top of an afterburner. The result was a stunning character unto itself. It really is. The Batmobile is its own character. And in fact, in, in lieu of Robin, the Batmobile is Batman's sidekick. Um, it, it drove audiences wild with this animalistic design. While Nolan's Tumblr reinvented the Batmobile for a modern audience, fuck the Tumblr, the Burton Mobile wins out in the styling department 1 billion percent. It's a mini weapon of mass destruction on wheels with protective shielding and a weapons catch that would make the U.S. Army jealous. More than 30 years later, it is still the Gotham Road King. Now, this this is where we, for the first time, you know, again, if you're if you're an avid reader of, of Batman and you're revisiting Batman from when you were a little kid, but now you've read a bunch of Batman comics like I did. And I'm going, wait a minute. Why does Batman have chain guns inside of the Batmobile? Why is he, he's killing people. He's, he's got bombs that he's, he's exploding. He's demolitioning factories that probably caved in. He's like killing lots of people. Batman doesn't kill people. This is the most inaccurate Batman ever. You know, and that's this is where we have to like sort of respect Tim Burton's vision that he is deviating from the source material. Of course, no one's ever going to get it perfectly right. There are people. There are a bunch of adaptations that come incredibly close, but none of them are going to be pitch perfect. And in this version, this Batman doesn't have any problem killing people. We just got to accept it and appreciate it for what it is. And I do now. I do. There was a long time where I didn't and I couldn't accept it, you know, because like I said, core concept of Batman, as we've come to know him as the modern Batman, not the original Batman, because like we said, he used guns. The original Batman used guns, but Batman doesn't use guns and he doesn't take a life. And this really got amped up. And once again, in the, that's why I was talking about the Dark Knight Returns is such like a pivotal moment for the, for this character's history, because this is when the character is reinvented and suddenly, you know, lines like, we don't use guns. They're clumsy. What does he say? When he's talking to the bat, the bat gang, we don't use guns. They're clumsy and he breaks the gun in half. Our weapons are silent. And, you know, he's talking about his, his ninja, ninja batarang sort of dealies, you know, um, there's just, and there's such like an element of honor in that he doesn't use guns or traditional guns. He does use guns. He does brandish a gun in The Dark Knight Returns, but it's a gun with a grappling hook that allows him to sort of go from building to building. Number six, revealing his identity to an enemy. I mean, this is also a big no-no in most Batman comic book literature. There are exceptions to the rule, one being Ra's al Ghul, the demon's head, who we do see in Batman Begins. He does know Bruce Wayne's identity. He figured he deducts it or figures it. I forget how he finds out. But the thing about Raish is he's a man of honor, even though he is, you know, essentially wants to genocide the planet. Uh, noble intentions, wants to preserve the earth. But 
wants to commit mass genocide, which is a, a big no-no. I, I think we, we would all agree. Um, but he respects he respects the detective. He calls him the detective. He's really great. He's really well done in the animated series. And he has a daughter, Talia, Batman. Uh, Bruce Wayne has a son with Talia named Damien. Uh, this was originally not canon, though. That It was later made canon. It was from a one-off book called Son of the Demon, where it was implied that Batman had a son with Talia. But more recently, Damien, who's like a deadly homicidal little kid, which is awesome, uh, has become full-on canon, and he is the new Robin. I think it's awesome, and I hope it never goes away. Uh, there was an, I think that was really starting to be established. There was an issue called Batman 666, it was way before Bat. Oh no, it was Batman six sixty six, and it was uh, in the future. And Damien was now Batman, and yada yada yada, whatever. Um, why were we talking about all that? Oh, because Rachel Gould knows Batman's identity. So revealing his identity to an enemy, and you know, one of the big goofy, one of the big goofy aspects about the Warner Brothers Batman films is that the masks that they design, they all have these big eye holes, rightfully so, so you know, for comfort, and then they would paint dark there would be dark eyeshadow paint around the eyes to sort of finish the mask. And it's kind of comedic in this scene that we're seeing right here in Batman Returns where he reveals his identity to Selina um, to show her, you know, well, she already knew his identity because they figured it out because it was the same sort of hook as Dance with the Devil in the Pale Moonlight. That's how, that's how in that same scene where he talks about wanting to go nuts, he, he asks the question that he asked to all his victims the Joker does. Have you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? And Bruce Wayne remembers that that's what the murderer of his parents said when he was a little boy. See you around, kid. Like walks away, Jack Napier. And he makes the connection that Joker is the man that murdered his parents, which is a really cool sort of, sort of, you know, trying to keep the story closed off. You know, Batman as a singular film. Like if you never have anything after Batman, there's no continuing thing. And the film's really don't continue. Even Batman Returns is a very separate story from Batman. All the, the films are contained, very well contained. But Batman in particular is a perfectly well-contained film in that like it starts with the murder of his parents and he finds the murderer and gets his revenge and now he's just Batman and he stares up at the, the signal the end. That's the story of the Batman, you know, as opposed to Batman. Um, and it's really great. And in Batman Returns, Selena figures out Selena Kyle, Catwoman, wonderfully played by Michelle Pfeiffer. Some of the best casting in all of comic book films is Michelle Pfeiffer, Michelle Pfeiffer as Selena Kyle, Catwoman. And they have this little, she says something about like uh, mistletoe is deadly, but only if you eat it. And that's how they realize when they're dancing with each other to a Susie and the Banshee song that they are that that she is catwoman that he is actually batman um so at this point he has no problem revealing his identity by ripping off his his mask which is goes from being kevlar to rubber in, in 2.5 seconds kind of hilarious um the key to batman's success is his ability to keep his secret identity safe while pounding criminals into the dirt every night the last thing he would want to do is jeopardize that by revealing his face to the world yet he doesn't he does that exactly in batman returns when he tries to talk selena kyle down for murdering the villainous max shrek see now what the article has wrong is what i just said 
they figure out who each other are when Penguin crashes Max Shrek's ball. Max Shrek being named after the actor from the 1921 German expressionist Nosferatu film who plays Count Orlock as Max Shrek. A, a villain that is repurposed into Batman Returns that's not in any comic books. See, because that's the thing too, Tim Burton... And this is where Batman Returns really suffers. Tim Burton is almost more obsessed. He's kind of interested in Batman in Batman 89, but he come, becomes super obsessed with Batman's rogues gallery in Batman Returns. Batman is like a third-rate character. He's like a secondary character to the Penguin and Catwoman. And, this, and of course, he had to have one more villain, Max Shrek. You know, he just, just wanted Christopher Walken to be this weirdo uh, who runs this corporation. And um, uh, this is where this is where the, the Batman Returns should really be called the Penguin and the Cat or the, the Penguin and the Cat with a little bit of bat. You know what I mean? Because Batman is just so he's so in the back, you know, he's so backseat to these characters. He's nothing is explored with the character in Batman Returns. Really nothing, apart from, you know, a rehashing of, of how he can, can't really be in, in romantically involved with everyone because of his secret life. You know what I mean? The story is really about the pathos and the tragedy of Penguin and, you know, struggling with, like, who or what he is. You know, it's, it's just funny. Uh, and this is where Tim Burton he gets caught up in the sensationalism and the stylization of certain aspects and forgets about story altogether. Cause he just wants to, he's like, I, I really want a scene where Penguin has helicopter blades coming out of his umbrella, which is very true to the comic. And I want, you know, oh, and I need a scene where Batman is going to glide down uh, around a Christmas tree. I'm sure there, you probably have some suits or like, listen, we need some, we want you to make sure we get some toys made too. And you know, yada, yada, yada. I don't know. <laughs> Um, five, sorry. Um, without missing a beat, Bruce tears off his headpiece to reveal the man underneath. While Shrek doesn't appear too convinced that he's the genuine article, it would have been a folly to show his face in front of such a person. Either Bruce was ready to call it quits on the Cape Crusader biz, or he wasn't thinking straight. That is true because he wasn't expecting Max Shrek to be killed in that moment. It was very unbatman like of him to show his face to Max Shrek, especially a guy like Max Shrek. So it is maybe because he thought he was going to go to jail. I don't know. Um, he does say that, I think, at one point. So five political entanglements. Nolan's version of Bruce Wayne was only mildly involved in Gotham City's politics. I would argue the opposite. I would say not at all, man. Nolan's version was he was involved with like the municipal, the the, the municipal works, like you know this big train. Uh, Wayne Enterprises is building this big train that goes around, you know, uh, Gotham City, or at least is is something that his father put together. And then also, what about what about um, the tactical division, the the art, you know, to explain all the gadgets, you know, that sort of stuff. And probably they probably have military contracts or. Or, or going to, like, he has to, like, extradite, you know, some guy from outside the the country in Singapore or Shanghai or somewhere. I don't even know. Some, some, some country in the South Pacific. 
he's he's all over the place. He he's all over the place. So I don't really, I don't I don't know I don't know if we can really say it's singular to to Burton's uh, Burton's version. No one's version of Bruce Wayne was only mildly involved in Gotham City's politics and preferred to pull strings uh, with subtlety from behind his desk. This usually took the form of campaign contributions to individuals like Harvey Dent. Oh, yeah, I didn't even think about the Harvey Dent connection, too. I mean, come on. Harvey, you're my white knight. Harvey, you're my white knight. Uh, who he thought could make a real difference in turning the city around. In so much so, and this was a huge problem with me with Batman, uh, with, with the Dark Knight. The, no one's the Dark Knight. The moment that Bruce Wayne discovers Harvey Dent with a gun to someone's head, ready to murder them, that's the moment that you cross the line with Batman. The moment that you like b- break the law in that kind of way, you are no longer one of the good guys. You are compromised. Batman would think you are compromised and can't be trusted and yada, yada, yada. And the fact that he enables Harvey Dent to continue to unravel the way he does because he believes in Harvey Dent, the white knight, I, it, I never, ever bought that. It never ever clicked or jived with me and i always thought it was bullshit and it was another thing that really turned me off to the dark night you're gonna see me swatting a lot of flies away because i am in the middle east right now and it is dry hot desert summer and the flies are out like like vultures man and they are the worst and it's one of the worst parts about being outside if i'm being honest sometimes um that's why i like doing the show early in the morning because it's very cool and you, the sun rises and the flies aren't out yet um so yeah so i think it's i think it is malarkey man such malarkey that uh uh that's malarkey the harvey dent thing um who he thought he could make a real difference in turning the city around uh not at that point in burton's batman films wayne is much more politically involved he actively hobnobs with city elite well he does there's like that fundraiser thing in the beginning at wayne wayne's mansion okay specifically the mayor, okay. In the second film, Wayne openly confronts Max Shrek about the Penguin running the Red Triangle Circus Gang and vows to work with the mayor to defeat his political run because the, the Penguin the penguin is running for the mayor, which I thought was such a, br- that's a brilliant idea for a comic book movie. That's great. That works. Like that's, that, that part of the story works really well, but that's not Bruce Wayne Batman story. He literally has no story in this film. The story belongs to the Penguin, which is kind of ridiculous to an extent. But then again, a lot of people will tell you one of the things, and we haven't talked about this at all, but one of the things that makes Batman so great for a lot of people is his rogues gallery. The rogues gallery is what makes Batman stand out, you know, even more than 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 he might because he is the best rogues gallery. There's such interesting characters more than any other superhero. Um, in DC or Marvel, I would say, definitely in DC. Premiere, premiere. When people think about DC supervillains, they think about Batman's Rogues Gallery. Um, and they don't even mention he. They don't even he doesn't even mention uh, the the fact that you know when he's in this article, they're not even talking about the fact that Max Max Shrek wants to suck power out of Gotham City. I mean, isn't that kind of political a little bit? Like you know in that he's petitioning the mayor and trying to get uh, uh, permits cleared so he can build this giant power station that doesn't give power to Gotham, but takes power and charges people and 
makes money somehow. I don't know. Four, his relationship with Commissioner Gordon. Now, what's interesting about Pat Hingle, who plays Commissioner Gordon, and you'll notice, I didn't notice this until much later in life, that Pat Hingle is missing his pinky finger. And it's very, it's it, it's right there. It's very jarring when you look and you're like, oh, he's missing his finger. Something that I just never realized, didn't know until I was uh, revisiting the, the Warner Brothers films one day. Um, besides Pat Hingle, Michael Goh, who plays Alfred, these are the only two actors that are in all four films. This is the only connective tissue that we have through all four movies. So they kind of do hold this sort of symbolically important sort of connective tissue that allows us to think about the Warner Brothers films as like a cohesive whole because Batman changes faces three times, you know? Uh, the relationship between Batman and Commissioner Gordon cannot be overstated. This is something that Nolan did really well. He really, really nailed Commissioner Gordon. And he gave Commissioner Gordon so much to do. I, you know, maybe I'm too hard on Nolan. Uh, there's a lot of things I don't like about Nolan, but there's some things that he really nails really, really well. And one of them is Commissioner Gordon and Commissioner Gordon's partnership with Batman. In the Nolan movies, mwah. But in the Batman movies, he's just like a background character. The relationship between Batman and Commissioner Gordon cannot be overstated. It's one of the linchpins in keeping the balance between vigilanteism and policing in check. So true. And such a, and especially, oh my God, their relationship like goes to new levels during Batman No Man's Land in 1999, 2000, 2001, when there's an uh, earthquake that turns Gotham City into a no man's land and all the Batman's rogues sort of take over uh, and uh, parts of Gotham City and they have their own gangs and it basically becomes like a a vigil, uh, um, sorry, a post-apocalyptic uh, uh, landscape. They kind of did a little bit of this in the third Batman, The Dark Knight Rises. They do a little bit, they kind of do a little bit of, of No Man's Land there. Um, but uh, Commissioner Gordon is so essential in in this series and it's awesome to see his partnership with Batman in full swing. It's wonderful. And the same can be said for the long Halloween, which they, which is where Nolan got some of his inspiration. That's the source material that he looked at. I'm being told that the long Halloween is being adapted finally. And I can't wait because Jeff Loeb is one of the best Batman writers out there. I mean, the dude is, is so he, he's a, he's a poet when it comes to writing Batman. Check out his work with Batman. Haunted Night, Dark Victory, uh, which is a sequel to The Long Halloween. Great stuff. Great, great stuff. Um, Nolan's films pull Batman much closer to Gordon than had previously been seen before in the movies. Burton's Batman was more detached from the commissioner, very much so. And they have one scene together in Batman Returns. It's like, oh, we got to get that obligatory Commissioner Gordon scene. So put it at the beginning with the Red Triangle gang. Uh, the two rarely spoke or shared any on-screen time together. In fact, the first film spent its entire running length, the two at odds. Well, right, because he reads the, the note at the end, uh, Commissioner Gordon, uh, from Batman with the bat signal. While the second film showed Batman as something of a lone wolf who the commissioner calls out as extra muscle. Yeah, that's, and again, that's, as an adaptation, that's valid. That's totally valid. Like, fine. By the uh, once again, I'm gonna take another moment to just say if you are new to this channel, please take a moment and subscribe, 
like, share, comment, yada, yada, yada. Great way to support the channel. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, three, his butler. Alfred Pennyworth has kept the Cape Crusader going. That much is certain. Without his attentiveness and support, it's doubtful Bruce Wayne would have lived nearly as long as he did. Very true. Well, Alfred, I mean, and also Alfred is like the closest thing that he has to, you know, a family, a father and a mother. Um, well, Alfred does have quite a colorful history of his own. That's right. He used to be in like a secret service in England. He's perf- he, and he has his own series now on, on Netflix. It's called Pennyworth. He's portrayed very low key in Burton's films. I really like what Snyder did with him sort of really took him into the Robin role. Like he really feels more like a sidekick in the Snyder verse where he's, he's younger. He's more tech savvy. It's like they tried to fuse Lucius Fox with, with uh, a little bit of Robin and a whole lot of Alfred in Jeremy Irons portrayal in the Snyder verse movies. And I like it. I liked it a lot. Uh, But yes, he is very low key. He's very old. He's very old. I mean, he's an old hammer. I think he was in a lot of hammer films Uh, and he's in a lot of Burton movies. You could see Michael go turn up a whole bunch. Uh, This version of Alfred is much more the traditional Butler type complete with a distinguished high society accent and mannerisms to match. He is not a grizzled analyst like Nolan's version of the character. Uh, yeah, Michael Caine was pretty good as 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 Alfred. He was a pretty great Alfred too. I got you know, it's almost like Nolan was real. You know, a new new take here or new realization as we're doing this. Nolan was really good with a lot of the supporting characters in the Batman universe, much more so than he was with Batman. I would say he really really nailed. Lucius Fox, great. Like I was really happy with Lucius Fox. Michael Caine as 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 Alfred was pretty great. Even Liam Neeson as um, Rachel Ghoul was pretty great. Um, Cillian Murphy was pretty good as the Scarecrow. It, it really falters. With everything really falters with Harvey Dent and with Christian Bale. Truly, even Bane is kind of interesting. Even though he's kind of weird, but it was a very weird choice to, to do to do this with Bane. I wish that, you know, he could have used like a, a luchador mask so that that um, what's his face? Tom Hardy could have been more expressive with his face, you know, underneath this this gas, this gas mask sort of situation. They don't really. <coughs> he made it's interesting. He uh, Bane is really charismatic the best thing about the dark knight rises the only good thing about the dark knight rises truly bane is really charismatic but he's executed his he's sort of executed poorly at the same time from like a production design aspect you know what i mean uh, character wise not so much character wise he's very interesting I'm, I'm down i'm down with that part of bane um so uh He's not a grizzled analyst like Nolan's version of the character, nor is he an actively involved, uh, is, nor is he as actively involved as the version seen in Batman versus Superman. Instead, he straddles the fence between both worlds in a pleasant and charming manner. I agree. I'm, I've always love Michael Goh's uh, Pennyworth, even though he's a little bit old. He's a little bit too old. Um, He does a wonderful job uh, assisting Batman when they sabotage the Penguin's mayorial 
campaign, you know, and they hijack his, he, you know, he's, he's th there in the Batcave, which is another great aspect. We haven't spoken about the Batcave is great in, in, um, in Keaton's, uh, Keaton's cave is great, but he's there working the machinery to help Batman uh, sabotage the penguin with recordings that they made. It's great. Love it. Two is parents killer. We, we talked about this briefly and I think it's great. And this is great casting for, for a young Nicholson. Uh, this one's no mystery for comic book fans who know Batman's backstory, but it's a bit of a shock when the source material was adapted for the 1989 film. Here, and you can you know this was Burton's idea. Here, Burton decided to kill two birds with one stone by making the primary antagonist the dark inspiration <clears throat> for Batman's personal vendetta. And I mean, it works. It works so well. I have no issue with this. Fine. That's totally fine with me. Um, you know, Batman, Batman is a revenger. He does get revenge. You know, there's, they talk a lot about revenge in Batman forever. One of the overarching themes is Batman is, is Val Kilmer's Bruce Wayne trying to get Chris O'Donnell's Dick Grayson. And that's another thing. Oh my God. Dick Grayson in, in friggin' Batman forever is phenomenal. Uh, trying to keep him from exacting revenge on, on Harvey, on Harvey Dent on Two-Face. You know, probably the fun, the the goofiest aspect, really. Well, I mean, you could say that the Riddler is pretty goofy too. Uh, I've heard a lot of people say like that they just cannot get over how Harvey Dent is portrayed in Batman Forever. It works. It's the '90s. It's 1995. It works for 1995. Whatever. Yes, it's goofy. It's the, that's probably the worst character portrayal of all in that whole series. In that movie, particularly, is. Harvey Dent is just so goofy. He's so goofy. He's so over the top. That's not Harvey Dent. Harvey Dent is a cold-blooded, serious, calculating killer who, who is super unpredictable because of his coin. And we don't see that as much in Batman Forever. There's my first criticism of Batman Forever, truly. Um, Jack Napier, a.k.a. The Joker, was responsible for the murder of Wayne's parents when he was a child. This gave Bruce Wayne an extra personal reason to take down the crown, the clown prince of crime. Besides the fact that he wanted to off three quarters of Gotham's population with Smilex gas. And people forget, like, the plot is a very good comic, comic book plot. The Joker uses his Smilex gas to poison various household products. To He's just terrorizing the city. He's doing... What he's doing is no different from what um, the Joker is doing in The Dark Knight. You know, they're very, very similar. You know, people sort of uh, give a lot of credit to what Heath Ledger, Heath Ledger's motivations in in that film. And it's just not, it's just not the case. You know what I mean? Um, killing through revenge. It could be argued that the Dark Knight's entire crusade against crime is a form of revenge for the death of his parents. Yes, partially, but this particular version went far beyond. When Bruce Wayne learned that Jack Napier was the villain responsible, it changed their dynamic entirely. Batman rained down death and destruction on the Joker's crew before trying to take him down directly. Even Just hearing that, when you think about it, like, take the DC Comics aspect completely out of Batman 89, Tim Burton's Batman 89. 
and think about this is just a film about a vigilante that dresses up as a bat exacting revenge on the on this clown prince of crime who killed his his billionaire parents his millionaire parents and it just sort of like it's like it's it's like this dark revenge shakespearean pathos type story that totally works as a self-contained film and that's why it it's still it still holds up even to this day, you know, and all of those things that I just said are perfectly valid within the Batman mythos from that 1939 time, like we said over and over again during this episode. So it all works. It's all, it all works. Um, eventually this led to a mismatched beat down at the top of the church's bell tower in the final act. And it's so great. It turns into it, it turns into the hero climbing the tower to rescue the damsel from the monster in the Gothic church. Like it's, it's, it's wonderful. What a wonderful, these wonderful archetypal archetypical, I, I can't talk. Arch, these wonderful archetypes within the storytelling, these, these broad strokes that sort of transcend the comic book anchors of batman and sort of make it this thing that's outside of batman in the same way that um jean cucuteau's le belle le bête beauty and the beast is the true french universal horror monster film right if you think about it beauty and the beast is truly in general the story of beauty and the beast is is the first uh, universal monster story way before frankenstein way before Dracula, you know, a fairy tale that goes back to the 16 or 1700s in France, right? Um, and so in that kind of way, that's what we, we're kind of seeing in in Batman. It's like this stuff that you might find in a, maybe a film from the 1920s and the 1930s, you know, maybe a noir film. There's a lot of noir in Batman. It's almost like, a comic book noir, if you think about it. And, you know, look no further than the gorgeous, brilliant production design. For me, I like Schumacher's Gotham City, but I like Tim Burton's Gotham City a whole lot more. It feels way more like the comic book. It's funny, they're both solid comic book adaptations of Gotham City. I've always hated Nolan's version of Gotham City and Snyder's version leaves is not great either in these two in those two more modern cinematic adaptations of Batman it doesn't feel like Gotham City at all Schumacher and Burton nailed them perfectly you know Schumacher's had more color uh, uh, Burton's was just drenched in darkness Burton's was noir and Schumacher's was theatrical if that makes any sense. And they both work. Um, this vengeful attitude would be revisited later in Batman versus Superman's interpretation. The character's version kept the killing long after the Joker was down and out. True, because he does the same thing. And then, <clears throat> then there's one more thing I want to look at real quick. Let's just see, since since we're here, since we like to be thorough here, if you bear with me one more second, I found this other article. Top 10 Bruce Wayne is Batman. No, no, sorry, sorry. Wait, what? Oh, here it is. 
Boosman. Wait, what? There's there's two top ten articles that I realized that we have. Okay, so there's this one real quick. Let's just look at this real quick. We're not going to read the whole thing. He nailed Batman's duality. These are things that Batman, 10 reasons why Michael Keaton is still the best Bruce Wayne. He nailed Batman's duality. No. No, he did not. Man, maybe a little bit. You seem uncomfortable as Bruce Wayne posing as a carefree billionaire in the public eye and his element and in his element as Batman. That's true. Raisingly terrifying goons with an icy stare. On top of that, the, the Bruce facade facade broke down when he was around Vicky Vale and he could be his true self. He improvised a lot of his best lines. So is the nuts line, for example, in the dinner scene between Bruce and Vicky, Keaton impro- improvised line, you know, I don't think I've ever been in this room before. Well, that's great. I mean, that's a very Bruce Wayne. That's a good Bruce Wayne line. I'll, I'll give him credit for that. Um, he was casual, not aggressive. A lot of modern portrayals of the Cape Crusader, like the versions played by Christian Bale and Ben Affleck, seem to have an aggression off to see who could be the angriest Batman. But uh, Michael Keaton went the other way with his performance. The anguish and inner turmoil showed through Keaton's portrayal of Bruce Wayne. While he was Batman, he was cool and casual. That's true. He was kind of cool and casual. He was more comfortable wearing the cowl than the tuxedo. Nah, I don't know about that. He was cool and casual as Batman in certain scenes. Okay, I'll give that. He invented the Batman voice. Okay, I will say this. Um, there is a lot of great Batman voice that Michael Keaton does as Bruce Wayne. All right, I have to give him that. Every actor that plays Batman has to work out their Batman voice. This was actually invented by Michael Keaton. Before Keaton, the actors who played Batman used the same voice to play Bruce Wayne. But Keaton didn't believe it was realistic that no one could tell it was billionaire socialite Bruce Wayne under the cow. I mean, I really, I haven't watched the movie in a while. I'd have to really go back and take a look. But yeah, I'd, I'd say, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty good too. I'm, I'm being, I'm being overtaken by this article and, and convinced, convinced otherwise of what I was trying, came here to say. He had the best Batman voice. He invented the Batman voice. He had the best Batman voice. This is 100% disagree here. I would, I, I give that to Val Kilmer, man. He, Val Kilmer's Batman voice is phenomenal. And Kevin Conroy, who is a voice actor, is Batman to me. When I read Batman comics, I think of Kevin Conroy's voice and Kevin Conroy's voice alone. He defied over 50,000 naysayers. There's a longstanding tradition of Batman fans have no faith in the actors that get cast in the movie adaptations of the comics and end up eating their words when those actors give fantastic performances. That's true. Uh, fans complained about Heath Ledger being cast as the Joker and the result, and it resulted in an Oscar-winning portrayal of one of the greatest vill- villains in movie history. I don't know if he would have won that Oscar if he hadn't died, but it is, I will say it is one of the greatest portrayal of a villain in movie history, for sure. So maybe it would have been, he definitely would have been nominated. I don't know if he would have necessarily won because the, the and fuck the Academy. What are the, the Academy, they don't know shit. That tradition started when Michael Keaton was cast as Batman. And the, the offices of Warner Brothers were flooded with 50,000 protest letters, but that's been going on forever in the age of the internet. This was not, I mean, this was something, maybe it was new at the time, but people, there have been a lot of naysayers. There have been way more naysayers than that. That doesn't make Michael Keaton a good Batman, in my opinion. He had great chemistry with the actors playing his villains. So-so, so-so. Maybe with, maybe with Jack Nicholson as the Joker. A little bit. I'd say more than anything, his chemistry with Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman definitely w- was was on on the ball. 
definitely was on the ball. A little less so with with the Penguin. In the age of uh, MCU cookie cutter villains coming and going without making an impact on the hero or the audience, that shouldn't be taken for granted. I, I think this is uh, no, this is bullshit, man. That no way, man. He he doesn't. He didn't have that. His chemistry was okay. Wasn't that great? Wasn't that? They're giving him too much credit. He brought a sense of humor to the role. This is true. He did bring a sense of humor to the role. He was a comedian. Michael Keaton comes from a a comedic world. And again, ad-libbing a line, like I've never even been in this room before, is a great, that's a great Bruce Wayne, aloof kind of line. Want to get nuts is not, you know? There's some, someone did a meme of the Joker and Batman and, and Bruce Wayne, Michael Keaton's Bruce Wayne, uh, walking away from like a nut stand saying, I'm really glad we got nuts because we want to get nuts. Let's get nuts. <laughs> they got nuts. He's like, I'm really glad we did this. It's really funny. Um, he had a close working relationship with Tim Burton. I, that doesn't matter. They worked on three films together, but that doesn't matter to me. Um, having already worked together on Beetlejuice, uh, Michael Keaton and Tim Burton had established a working relationship prior to collaborating on the two Batman movies. And that relationship only got stronger when they, uh, when they were working on the films. I think, like I said, Val Kilmer and Joel Schumacher worked together once and they did a phenomenal job. I don't think that, I don't think that should count for anything. He humanized Bruce Wayne. I think Val Kilmer humanized Bruce Wayne way more than Michael Keaton did. Um, or just as much, maybe, just as much. The most important quality that Michael Keaton brought to Bruce Wayne was making him feel like a real person. Um, given that he's a genius billionaire, they're giving him too much credit, man. Uh, um, given that he's a genius billionaire vigilante, it can be hard for an actor to make Bruce relatable, but Keaton managed it. He brought a real humanity to Bruce that's hardly ever seen on, I mean, everybody today goes on and on about how about how um, Michael Keaton is still the best on-screen Batman. And I feel like people just say that because it's like the thing to say. You know what I mean? Like they don't actually believe it. They just they just say it because it's like the thing to say, you know? Um, so yeah, that, that, that concludes the stream for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you like this content, uh, please consider signing up for the Patreon um and or buying a cup of coffee and more than anything please make sure to subscribe like comment leave a share should we go to the sponsored sponsored outro let's see if it'll let us let's see if the um the wi-fi is gonna let us do it it may not it's 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 difficult it's difficult let's see where oh my god did they take away my videos where are my videos oh there they are hey guys what's going on let's try it it's not working hey guys what's going on hey guys what's going on it's jeff so i've decided do it hey guys what's going on hey guys hey guys what's going on it's jeff so i've decided to make a patreon what is patreon i don't know how to define a patreon let me look it up Patreon is a membership platform that makes it very easy for creators to get paid for the things that they're already creating. I want to do it full time. I want this 
to be my full-time job. In my efforts to make that happen, I've set up this platform. Is it going to work? Is it going to be successful? I don't know, but I would rather try and crash and burn than not try at all. The goal is to create enough passive revenue so that I can continue to do this full-time uninterrupted. Why? Because I love to do this. I love creating content. I love making videos. I love shooting films. I love doing podcasts. In case you couldn't tell, I love to talk and I never shut the fuck up. <laughs> so right now I've kept the Patreon incredibly simple. There's two tiers and that may change in the future. The Murdergram is a simple way to extend support for all of the hours and hours of free content on the channel for nothing more than a dollar. 38 cents goes to Patreon. What's a buck 38, eh? It's less than a cup of coffee. But it's a great way that you can show support for very little effort. When you divide that dollar 38 by the hours and hours and hours of time spent listening to this endless drivel of content, the dollar cost average works out. Next up is the YouTube casualty for $6.66. <laughs> the YouTube casualty is loaded to the gills. Enjoy the archive ad-free as well as ad-free early access to special docu-style podcast videos, music reaction commentaries, and the like a month before they drop on YouTube, loaded with ads, I might add. You're also going to get exclusive content and behind-the-scenes content that is not available on YouTube or anywhere else. So you get to peek behind the veil. And believe me, there's a couple of choice pieces. Most of all, more than anything, whether you join the Patreon or not, I just want to thank each and every one of you that comes to the channel, that watches all the shows, that leaves comments, that participates, that subscribes. That's really the most important thing. This is just trying to find a way to earn a living as an artist. And with that, thank you for my TED Talk. Join the Patreon, because we need you! 66 cents. Have a wonderful day, everybody. Cheers.